When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to tell you my secret now. I see death. Silent train is people! No, I am the father of What's in the box? You Hello and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, the movie critic at Slate, and today I am joined by Isaac Butler, who's the co-host of Slate's Working Podcast, a Slate contributor, and also the author of the upcoming book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. That's coming out next year in February. And by Rachel Syme, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker and has written something lovely on Jennifer Coolidge and The White Lotus. I'm sure that we'll get to that and to her take on that character and to this whole show. I'm really happy to be talking to you all here. I've already covered The White Lotus in a different Slate podcast, the Slate Culture Gab Fest, where we argued about it, and I was the one on the panel who liked it the most. And now I get to talk and maybe argue about it again with both of you. I can't wait. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dana. Yeah, thank you. So I guess maybe I'll start, as I often do with the spoiler special, since this is not a review, this really is about, you know, getting into the fine details of the story. I just want to know overall how you both responded to this piece of television and, you know, whether you've been going around passionately advocating for it or rewatching it or just letting it recede into memory or what. I'll start with you, Isaac. What, what did you think of The White Lotus? Yeah, I really liked it. I particularly enjoyed, you know, the performances and the music, which I'm sure we'll get into later. And, you know, the way the whole thing was put together and, you know, certainly have enjoyed talking about it with people over the weeks as it, as it's happened. I, I would say that part of my enjoyment of it is a little bit divorced from its actual content in that, like it was a television show with complicated characters whose problems were not easily resolved and long scenes with beginnings and middles and ends and like subtext and stuff. And that that's not how a lot of TV <laughs> it feels like it's operating right now. And so I just felt very grateful to be able to like have some of that again. But then I also enjoyed the the, the story itself. I have a lot to say about that, but first I'm going to jump over to Rachel and just get your general response to the show. Okay, so my general take on this show is that I really like it, and I am a passionate advocate for the work of Mike White in general. I think he's written some of my favorite movies and television. Obviously, Enlightened is a show that I think was gone too soon from HBO and is brilliant and amazing, and so I'm always excited to see what he does next. Obviously, I think this show has strong points and weak points, and I can see all the sort of prismatic ways in which it is complicated and troubling and troublesome, but I also like that it makes trouble. I also like that, as Isaac said, its characters are complex and morally messy, and I found it fully fascinating to watch. So, yeah, I I fall on the side of being somebody who tells people to watch it. 
Yeah, I would be with both of you on that. I may I may like it the most on this panel as well. I mean, I would say that I, I basically loved this show. And that doesn't mean that it's immune to critique or, you know, that there aren't there aren't things about it that can be looked at through a lens that's that's unflattering in the same way that the show itself looks at its characters often through an unflattering lens. But going back to something that Isaac said, you know, just you talking about how there aren't that many shows on television that you really feel like, you know, are really dense with kind of themes and characters and, you know, like layered in this way. This show just feels very written and that sounds bad, but mm-hmm. I mean it in the best way. This is a writer's show, right? And Mike White in the past obviously has been thought of more as a writer, a screenwriter for other people's films or shows than as a director, though he's done some directing too and also some acting. But this really feels to me like it's approaching television as a medium for writers. And and I really appreciate that about it. And in that sense, I hope that there's a second season of it. I'd be very curious to see what would happen with a new set of characters at this same sinister hotel. And and also that there are this will maybe open up uh, the, the space for more shows like this, for shows that really express a unique vision. I mean, one thing you have to say about this show, whether or not you love it, is that it does not feel like it's checking off boxes and no. you know, that's, right. it's fitting into the type of any other show that you've seen recently on TV. I mean, Mike White didn't have a writer's room for this show. He wrote every episode himself, basically in isolation as a product of isolation because the backstory of the show is that HBO basically came to him and asked him if he could make essentially a giant bottle series, bottle episode turned series during the pandemic. And this is what he came up with. So he wrote it all himself. And like you said, I think it does feel very authored and it feels novelistic in that way to me, where it's kind of like, here's a big sweeping theme and here's a panoply of characters that are going to come in to sort of reiterate and also poke at the theme and also undercut it to sort of get you thinking about some kind of bigger takeaway. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that, uh, and if I remember correctly, it was also written fairly quickly. Like yeah. The show was made fairly fast. I think he said in an interview that the scripts are, are pretty early drafts. So there's sort of, two filtration systems missing. One of them is the sort of long lead time that television tends to have. And another is the normal production process where you have a writer's room. And there's also layers upon layers of producers and network people that you have to get to sign off on everything. And it has a lot less of that. And so it feels very unfilteredly itself. And so even in the parts that I think maybe are less successful. I was also just really happy to have something that like where the choices were so clear and that it was like just really doing its own thing in this kind of unapologetic way. I just found myself very grateful for that. And I I agree with you, Dana. I hope that that means that we'll get more shows that have a kind of uh, individualized, maybe even quickly made, maybe even a little rougher feel for the sake of having that kind of like personality. I guess maybe before we get into the the themes, we should maybe set up the characters because there are a lot of them to keep track of. And we meet them in a very elegant way at the beginning of the show. The show starts with a flash forward, essentially. It starts with a moment later in time than the rest of the show. And you think that maybe there's going to be a sort of Tarantino-esque structure of moving between different time frames, but that's not really what happens. You get this flash forward at the beginning to introduce all the characters as they arrive by boat at this hotel. And then we jump back a week in time and sort of see everything that led up to that moment. Maybe we'll start with the Jake Lacey character, Shane, who's the very first person we meet 
during this this flash forward. Uh, does anybody want to take on the piece of work that is Jake Lacey Shane? Sure, I can go for it. I mean, I think one of the pleasures of that character is that if anybody has ever seen Jake Lacey in anything before, he is generally cast as the nicest possible person, or at least a guy who is struggling with being nice or trying to be seen as nice. I'm thinking of his character Fran and Girls, where he's, I think he played Lena Dunham's boyfriend for an entire season, and the whole thing was that he was kind of too nice. So his character in The White Lotus is totally casting against type in a way, which I really appreciated, which is this character of Shane, who is this incredibly moneyed baby man, sort of frat boy in polo shirts who is a newlywed. He has recently married a freelance writer in New York City named Rachel, played by the wonderful Alexandra Dario, who I think does some of her best work in this show. And he is just incredibly entitled and spoiled and all of those words that you can use to describe somebody who is born with a silver spoon in their mouth and has never not known privilege and getting every single thing he wants the minute that he wants it. That's how I would describe that character, right? And and like deeply angry with a strange temper problem. Yeah, and Jake Lacey, I feel like, does such a great job of outlining that character that even though you are absolutely cringing at every moment he's on screen and and really understanding why everybody in that hotel must want to punch him in the face by the end of the first episode, really. You also see his struggles in a way, you know, his his struggles to make any meaning whatsoever of this this awful kind of privileged and just despondently depressed world that he's spent his whole life in. He's somebody who has such trouble sort of figuring out the meaning of the situation he's in or experiencing a single minute of empathy that he seems just just as desperate and stranded as any character on this show. <laughs> yes. The thing that I think Shane and his new wife, Rachel, and both of them are really wonderful performances, have in common is although they come from completely different kind of perspectives, they both are actually at a place where they do not know how to navigate adulthood. He doesn't know how to navigate adulthood because his mother takes care of everything for him. He's insanely wealthy. He just expects everything to be handed to him. And Rachel doesn't know how to handle adulthood because she doesn't really know who she is yet, which I think anyone who's been in their 20s can relate to. She doesn't really know who she is. And so part of what's interesting about that dynamic is it gives their fights because they fight a lot over the course of the show, a really interesting texture because Shane is often not wrong about some of the things that he's complaining about. He does it the wrong way or he takes it too far or whatever. But Rachel is not some sort of virtuous saint who is victimized by him, right? It's a bad match that brings out the worst in both of them in many ways. And it feels like we're jumping all the way to the end, but I can't wait to hear what you all think about Rachel's final moments because I yes. think it's it's a it's a nice bookend of the series. He st- Mike White starts and ends the series in an airport in Hawaii. And that the first scene, just to sort of lead us into it, is Shane saying that there has been somebody who has died at this White Lotus resort where we have not been yet. We know so I guess a couple is talking to him, some strangers and saying we hear someone died and he says, yes, the body's on the plane. Which in a certain way starts off this whole affair as a murder mystery, but Mike White has said in interviews that that was kind of a nod to the fact that that's what the viewers want. It's kind of a popular thing to do. He's like, you know, you want a popcorn mystery? I'll give you a popcorn mystery. And then right into it, this sort of scathing satire on top of it. But it starts with this idea that 
somebody has died and you there's a notable absence of Shane's wife. So obviously the question looms in the air. Was it the wife that died? Who died? Shane somehow connected to it, given that he has some strong reaction uh, about there being a body on the plane. So it starts off this kind of idea that Shane is a tragic figure in some way, but we do not know how. And he's such a dick while he's talking about it that you kind of don't care in a strange way. So it it immediately starts this push-pull feeling towards the characters. It's kind of an amazing first introduction. I, I, I think of like similarly to the way that, say, Fitzgerald introduces you to the Buchanans when you first meet them in Gatsby and you're like, I hate these people from the minute Tom opens his mouth at this dinner party. But at the same time, the the actual narrator is enthralled to them and their wealth and their the beautiful house that they have. So I think that there's this idea of kind of like putting you in that seat of sort of attraction repulsion immediately to the people that you see on screen. Right. I mean, this would be the most boring show imaginable if it was nothing but a scathing satire of rich people that makes them all look like idiots, right? And if it put us, the viewer, into this position of, you know, luxuriously being able to laugh at them and condemn them. And we'll get into it more as we talk about the the plot developments in in various storylines. But I think one of the great things that this show does is that it continues to sort of expose new new undersides to the rock, you know, of of the characters and also of this sort of corrupt and decadent atmosphere that they're, they're living in in the hotel as they, you know, exploit the, the workers around them. But we'll get there because we have so many more characters to cover. <laughs> yeah. so, so after we meet Shane in the airport with this mysterious cliffhanger about somebody having died in the past week at the resort, we go back a week in time. We're on the boat where everybody is, you know, heading to the, to the island of Maui to, to go to the White Lotus Resort, and we start to meet all the other characters. So, Isaac, I will throw to you the question of the Mossbachers, this very wealthy family headed up by this matriarch played by Connie Britton. The character's name is Nicole. She's married to Steve Zahn's Mark, and she seems to be a sort of Sheryl Sandberg type of character, right? I mean, it's implied that she's the head of some some giant social platform. Um, you know, she's some sort of tech innovator who is this extremely high-powered gazillionaire. Her husband, Mark, has a different story. They have some kids. Take it away. Tell us about the Mossbachers. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so Nicole Mossbacher is the head of some sort of, as you said, social media platform or tech company. There's been lots of debate on Twitter about how wealthy they actually are because they don't get a separate room for their kids, which we'll, <laughs> we'll get into later. But I actually think they do that as a as a deliberate choice to like try to like live more normally or something. But anyway, so Nicole Mossbacher, she is married to Mark Mossbacher, played by Steve Zahn in one of his, I think, career best performances, an actor I've always loved, who does not make as much money as she does and feels kind of emasculated by the by the wealth dynamics in their relationship. We later learn he has cheated on her in the past and they're still trying to kind of repair that. And uh, you basically first seriously meet him worried he's about to find out he has testicular cancer. Mm-hmm. So actually the one of the first things you see of that character is his scrotum, which is a sort of amazing way to set him up. They have two kids, the extremely online video game poisoned son, Quinn, played by Fred Heckinger, and Olivia Mossbacher, who I hope we spend some time talking about, played by Sidney Sweeney, who I think is in some ways one of the most mysterious characters of the show, because she at times seems almost like a, a figure of sociopathic malevolence. She's brought with her her what you would think is her best friend from college, a woman of color named Paula played by Brittany O'Grady and a lot of the show with that family is actually them kind of repeating the same behaviors over and over again, whether it's sitting by the pool reading, 
you know, Freud or, you know, Quinn spends a lot of time in a lawn chair staring at the ocean. But in each of these revisitings, you get kind of new layers to them and their conflicts and relationships. All right. Well, Rachel, I have to hand the next character to you to talk about because you wrote a whole piece for The New Yorker just about her, Tanya, played by Jennifer Coolidge, who's traveling solo to the island and and has her own tragicomic sort of backstory. You know, Mike White has said that Jennifer Coolidge was an inspiration for him for this entire series. He had written a series for her before for HBO that did not get picked up, um, much to my dismay. And I hope they one day make that show. But she is just brilliant in this role. As this woman, Tanya, who has come ostensibly on vacation to this island to scatter her mother's ashes, her dead mother's ashes in the ocean, we learn she is a woman of extreme means. She wears these amazing bejeweled caftans and robes. She's constantly looking like she's stepped out of an old Hollywood boudoir. She has a lot of marabou and spangles, a lot of like, you know, beautiful low light biolage in her hair. But her sort of tortured affect when she arrives at the island is she, I mean, the first thing she does is try to book a massage because she's incredibly tense. You learn that she has all of these mommy issues that have been dredged up by her mother's death. She was emotionally abused by both of her parents. Her wealth does nothing to compensate for her extreme inner sadness and anxiety. So she basically arrives as a very, very depressed and sort of with a cloud of malaise hanging over her rich woman traveling solo to the island. That's how I would describe. And maybe this gets us into our next character because she immediately develops a kind of parasocial obsession with this woman who works at the White Lotus Resort, which we quickly see when this boat docks on this beautiful island and this boatload of guests comes and meets the staff. I'll let you talk about Armand soon, but one of the other staff members is this woman, Belinda, played by the wonderful Natasha Rothwell, who you might know from Insecure, who is a kind of spa manager slash healing therapist. She does sort of sound baths and chants, mantras. She At one point, she's chanting the Gayatri mantra to Jennifer Coolidge. And immediately she gives her this sort of craniosacral massage that makes Jennifer Coolidge feel completely better. And suddenly Jennifer Coolidge develops an attachment to Belinda that becomes quite strange and goes into strange places, which we can talk about. But that's those two characters kind of live in tandem for the rest of the series. Yeah, that craniosacral massage moment that you mentioned, I think it happens in the first episode, was a real hook point into this series for me. That was a moment where I I started to feel like, okay, there's something going on here besides, you know, the satirizing of wealth and privilege. And, you know, this isn't just going to be about an upstairs, downstairs sort of story where, you know, we all laugh at the rich people and feel bad for the poor people, right? I mean, there's just something so complex that's happening in that moment between them because, we're used to seeing Jennifer Coolidge. I am. I mean, I think of the Chris Guest movie she used to be in, you know, and that she was always sort of a figure of fun, right? I mean, she's great at doing it, but, you know, she rarely is someone who who is bringing, as great as her chops are for both drama and comedy, she's rarely the person who's, whose story we're sort of emotionally invested in. She's more like the comic relief. And so you're expecting that. 
Then they have this moment where, you know, she really experiences something. She actually experiences what apparently in her life is a very rare moment of actual relief, peace, relaxation, right, in this in this encounter with Belinda. And you also, Belinda being the Natasha Rothwell spa director character, and you also see in that moment that Belinda is deeply invested in what she does, right? I mean, she is not kind of cynically phoning it in as the spa director for this hotel. She really is considers herself a healer and seems to be gifted in that department. And that comes into play later as, you know, this, this really relationship develops between them and they start talking about opening a business and the possibility that Tanya will become sort of the financial protector and investor of of Belinda's business. So that scene really establishes a lot when it could easily have been tossed off as, you know, just a a way to laugh at at Tanya's kind of absurd, new agey goofiness. All right. We have one more very important character. In a way, I think we've saved the best for last and I'll do this one myself. It's Murray Bartlett's Armand, who's the the manager of the hotel, an, an Australian man. We don't know much about his backstory, but we learn early on that he is a recovering addict, and we see him in action as a an extremely committed and yet uh, and yet cynical hotel manager. So unlike. Belinda, who seems to be using her spa director job as a way to explore her mission in life, he really feels like he's sort of slumming it and is somewhat miserable as the manager of this hotel. And yet at the same time, he wants to do his job to the utmost. So we hear early on in the first episode him giving a speech to a new employee at the hotel about how important it is that they all learn to be invisible. And, that, you know, that the great job of someone working in hospitality is to is to strategically disappear at the moment when you need to disappear. And, you know, the minute you hear him saying that, you know that there's going to be some sort of problem with visibility and his own ability to make himself disappear as the, as the series goes on. But I think Murray Bartlett is just brilliant in this role. I don't know. Isaac, you're a big knower of actors. Maybe you had seen him in things before, but I'd never seen him. No, no. I'm, uh, I don't think I was super familiar with him. I mean, I'm looking at his filmography right now. And no, I'm basically entirely unfamiliar with him. I think it's a really startling performance, though. I mean, it's, it's an example of I mean, I do think the writing is very uh, has a lot of complexity to it, but I, I do think that the actors also bring a lot of depth to each of these parts, and particularly Murray Bartlett and Natasha Rothwell have to do a lot of that because those characters do not sit around explaining themselves the way that wealthy white people do, right? And so, and yeah. so, there's not a lot of like discursive revelation of their character. It is all about what they're doing in their their faces, the way they're talking, the way they hold their bodies. You know, the basics of acting. And he makes a character about. I mean, what you know is he's in late middle age. He's gay. He's kind of worried about that he's wasted his life and he's been in recovery for five years. That's sort of the only facts about him that you know. But he feels like a fully realized and complicated human being from the get-go, to me anyway. Yeah. I will say, Dana, that fans of Sex in the City definitely know Murray Bartlett because he has an, a very memorable turn in an episode called All That Glitters where he plays this gay shoe distributor, Oliver Spencer, that Carrie meets at a gay bar called Trade, and then they become best friends for like- Wait, wait, d- wait, that's the same guy? And he takes her to Bungalow 8. Yes, same guy. <laughs> okay, you're blowing my mind here. So yeah, I I clocked him immediately. I was like, oh, Oliver Spencer, shoe distributor. He's so good in this, though. I mean, to a, a completely other level. I mean, as Isaac was saying, both he and Natasha have to do so much. I think one of the worthwhile criticisms of the show and something worth talking about is that, you know, it does focus a lot on the guests and not as much on the staff. You know, if it's an, it's not necessarily a complete upstairs, downstairs or Downton Abbey situation where you're getting as much intrigue into what's going on behind the scenes as you are in, into the lives of the 
wealthy patrons that are partaking of the scene. I think there's a point to that in a certain way, and I think it's deliberate, but I also can see it as a shortcoming of the show. So it, it is important and kind of incredible how much work Belinda and Armand are both doing to kind of like carry that plot line of like how the staff feels and acts around these incredibly entitled guests that they have to deal with every week. Right. I mean, if we had a show that was that was cutting back and forth between the home lives of Murray, the hotel manager, and Belinda, the spa director, and the, the home or hotel lives of all the guests, then we would not be identified with the hotel guests in the way that we are. And I think identification is part of what Mike White wants to create, right? I mean, I think he wants us to always, us, the audience, to always be shifting on this knife edge between finding the hotel guests loathsome and, you know, sympathizing with the plight of the people they're exploiting at the hotel. But at the same time, um, being embroiled in these incredibly petty dramas, like whether Shane and Rachel are going to get the pineapple suite, which is the fancy suite that they were supposed to have been reserved, oh right? Oh my God, the And pineapple essentially, suite. I mean, if you really follow the thread of, you know, how this this week turns murderous it all springs from this this pineapple sweet issue right and since this is a spoiler special i mean we can go ahead and spoil whatever we want as we go but the thing that sets up this enmity between the shane character and murray the hotel manager is simply the fact that Shane can imagine a better hotel room than the already absurdly over-the-top luxurious hotel room that he has for his honeymoon, that his mother, played later in the show by Molly Shannon, has reserved him this mythic pineapple suite that someone else is occupying. And so this service dispute, right, this 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 counter dispute at the hotel about whether or not they're going to be able to be upgraded to the pineapple suite becomes this fierce obsession of, of Shane's life. And that is another of those moments where this show, I think, balances comedy and tragedy really, really well, because you do start to see things turn darker and darker between them as the six episodes go on. But at the same time, it's extremely funny that something so petty and absurd is taking up so much of someone's imagination. So, I mean, to go back to the question of why are we spending so much time with the rich people? I think if we spent equal amounts of time with the rich and not rich people, we might not find ourselves caught up in those very petty disputes that that wind up becoming, you know, matters of life and death. Yeah, I mean, I think the dispute over the pineapple suite is like a perfect example of what the show is doing in terms of how the tone shifts really wildly. Like sometimes it's satire, sometimes it's drama, sometimes it's a Hitchcock movie, you know, and also an example of its weird complexity because Shane is correct. They have put him in the wrong room. It is a cheaper room that is not as good and they haven't refunded his money. And so his initial complaint about all of those things is actually right. He just immediately takes it to such a ludicrous place that it becomes this kind of excuse for him to turn into this kind of petulant baby monster creature and wreak all sorts of havoc on, you know, the hotel staff. Well, and it starts a chain of events that end up snowballing as well, because as a result of Shane's behavior about this pineapple sweet situation, which has a private plunge pool, which he cannot stop talking about, his new wife, Rachel, who we haven't talked about much, but who I think is a really compelling character, who who is this woman who was a writer in New York, but not a very good one. She was writing a lot of sort of clickbaity type content, maybe for like the likes of a, I don't know, you know, content farm for women's journalism. And she was from nothing. She kind of didn't have any money growing up. And so she marries into this wealthy family. She thinks she's got it made. 
at one point she's monologuing about this and says everybody was so jealous of her and that made her feel good like when she was marrying into all this money but immediately she sees the real sort of character of her husband when he's just so petulant like you said Isaac about this pineapple suite and immediately it becomes a horror story for her because she's like who the hell did I marry Yeah. And she is wound up sort of trapped in this marriage to someone that she didn't really understand. We learned very early on that they didn't know each other for very long. No, just just less less than than a year. year. And, you know, it's Jennifer Coolidge's character who uses the metaphor of peeling the onion. But part of what you're doing with these characters is you see them in the middle of a certain set of given circumstances. And then over those six episodes, we're slowly getting closer and closer to the the, the middle of their various onions. Oh my God, you you're, you're pointing to one of my favorite lines in the whole show, which Rachel, you talked about in your, your piece on Jennifer Coolidge's character, where she confesses to Belinda at one point that once you've peeled to the center of the onion, all there is is an alcoholic lunatic. <laughs> and as you say, Rachel... <laughs> a, straight, a straight up alcoholic <laughs> and lunatic, And as you say, yes. in, in writing about it, she she knows herself, right? I mean, she is a complete mess, but she is one of the, the few of the guest characters who, who has any degree of insight whatsoever. Well... I think what's what's great about the show, and maybe this helps us talk about all the different plot lines in the short time that we have, is that I feel like Mike White wrote three different short stories that all converge at the end in this brilliant way, and they all have sort of tensions that drive them, but that are complementary and all sort of like work towards this bigger theme. So obviously the Shane and Rachel story is about this sort of dissolution of the veil being lifted off literally of your new marriage and privilege sort of infecting every area of your life. I mean, at one point, like you said, Molly Shannon, his mother literally shows up at the hotel to help reinforce this idea that they're in the wrong room. Um, Although I think that has that Murray Bartlett's character has something to do with her showing up and he's kind of at this point trying to sabotage the honeymoon. The Mossbacher family is going through this other thing that is driven very much by Olivia and Paula's relationship where Paula feels like an outsider. Olivia wants what Paula has. They have kind of a strange frenemy thing going on. And at the same time, Steve Zahn's character, Mark, is worried he has cancer. There's all this. And Quinn is increasingly disconnected from his family and maybe wants to run off and join this um, hokulea, which is like a Hawaiian canoe team. And basically, it all culminates in this situation where Paula's character helps orchestrate a burglary inside the Mossbacher hotel room with a member of the hotel staff who is a native Hawaiian who says that the hotel was built on his family's ancestral land and all of their money has gone away. And she finds out that the Mossbachers have a very expensive pair of bracelets that they keep at the hotel safe. And she helps him try to steal it, which ends disastrously. So that's all going on with them. And then obviously Jennifer Coolidge's story is this sort of journey towards self-love and getting rid of her mother's ashes. And she meets a man at the resort and there are all these sort of different stories but they're all reinforcing this like bigger theme of like discovering yourself on vacation whether or not that's a malevolent thing or even possible and who at whose expense right so I think that's what's interesting about this is that they're all such different stories but like they weave together so beautifully. Yeah, I think at whose expense is maybe the the thread that ties them all together, right? I mean, in, in every single story, there is there's some sort of narrative of, like you say, self actualization or self discovery, and and in every single case, that results in someone else's suffering, right? In someone else being put uh, in jail. In the case of the the Hawaiian staff member Kai. And in the case of Belinda, the Natasha Rothwell character who's trying to open a business, babe, that's her first mistake, right? To open a business with someone as as flaky as the Jennifer Coolidge character, you know, she winds up being um, 
being made the instrument of of someone else's spiritual journey at the expense of her own, you know, hum- humiliation and abandonment and, you know, really despair. I mean, I, f- I feel like one of the saddest moments in the entire show is the resolution of that storyline, the storyline of, you know, the business that, that could have been and the business plan that she throws in the trash in the in the final episode. And the envelope full of money, the envelope full of money, the guilt money that Jennifer Coolidge oh, gives yes, her is yes. uh, uh, just like unbelievably devastating. But again, I come back to, you know, it's one of those really complicated moments because the realization on Tanya's part that she uses money to manipulate people and that going into this business plan thing is like actually this very unhealthy thing that's not going to end up well. It is probably correct. The problem is, is that it reveals how incredibly exploitative the dynamics of that relationship have been even more so than you think, you know, on to this whole other level, because she's essentially, you know, taking someone's dream and ripping it into a bunch of pieces and then just giving them an envelope full of money as a way of saying thanks and, and papering over that, you know. And then, of course, the other person who winds up uh, at whose expense is, of course, Armand, who dies as a result of, I don't know, but Shane's journey towards self-actualization and it ends up in Armand's death and in him seeming to learn absolutely nothing. I mean, that's the other thing is that, you know, what Shane emerges from that whole experience reassured that the self he's always been is actually correct. You, you don't get much of a sense that he's changed by the by the end of this. Well, and and again, this goes back to that bookending moment that I was talking about in the airport, because um, I know we're jumping all over the place. Uh, but, you know, the last moment that we get in the series more or less is Rachel who was thinking she was going to leave Shane forever and get out of the marriage, returning to the marriage and swearing fidelity and that she will be happy and she will attempt endeavor to be happy, which I think a lot of people are villainizing Rachel for and saying, you know, Oh, she is just as complicit in this, you know, as anybody else. She just, she chose the money that very, very well may be true, but I actually think ultimately what that moment is about is about Shane getting everything at the end. He didn't even Mm -hmm. lose his wife. Like he didn't lose a single thing and he killed somebody. I mean, yes, again, it was an accident. He's holding the pineapple knife. He turns the corner. Armand has broken into the room to defecate inside his suitcase in a final act of drug induced rebellion against this man who has made his life hell for a week. And he turns the corner and the knife goes into his belly and finney, it's, you know, Grand Guignol moment in the bathtub there. He's just, you know, dying in a pool of blood. But I think this idea at the very end that Shane gets every single thing and walks away from this vacation, like almost refreshed, is the final cruel trick that Mike White plays on the viewer. To me. Absolutely. It's, it's, I think that is a brilliant moment. And, and it's, to me, it goes so far beyond judging or not judging that individual character for her choices, right? I mean, that is just such a systemic condemnation at the end of the show that, that there's this kind of impregnable, rich white boy who literally kills someone, right? And treats absolutely everyone throughout the entire show like garbage and ends up on top of the world, right? I mean, the only thing really that saves this show from being just utterly, utterly bleak at the end is the fate of Quinn. And I wanted to talk about the fate of Quinn Mossbacher as well and how you feel about that character, who we haven't talked about much, the teenage boy who goes from being this kind of video game addicted zombie, right? He's really sort of a a cipher at the beginning who all we know about him is that he's on his devices all the time to really being the only character who you could say 
did make some some kind of moral progress during the course of the show and maybe become, you know, a somewhat more more thoughtful person capable of a happier life. There's a set of critiques that you could make of the choices that he makes as well, but I think that he is being placed, and I think Mike White has said this in interviews, he's being placed as, you know, the the one figure of hope at the end of the show. Yeah, I mean, well, he runs away from his family. I mean, you know, like the figure of hope is leaving the the world is leaving his old world behind. And, and But it's worth saying that, you know, like there's that point midway through, maybe it's episode three or something where, you know, like he's sort of so enfeebled by the life that he's constructed that he can't even masturbate. There's the sequence where he's sort of like half-heartedly trying to masturbate to porn on his phone and he can't even kind of do that. It's like, it's like he's reached this sort of, you know, what we think of as intense midlife crisis moment or something. And the poor kid is only 17 years old and no one takes him seriously or listens to him. And he's completely withdrawn inside this shell. And, you know, he is the one character who sort of changes the most in many ways over the course of the the season. And that by the end, he actually like he seems to recognize that the world he inhabits is the thing that he needs to reject. I mean, I think if you extrapolate out that ending realistically, you know, Quinn is going to have to email his parents and get some allowance money wired to him if he wants to keep living in Hawaii. You know, he's a 17 year old. He's not even finished with high school. Steve Zahn is not wrong about that stuff. But at the same time, you can't help but admire that, you know, all of these characters have reached a point in the world they occupy where it's kind of killing them on, on, on either some soul level or actually physically. And he's the one who's like, oh, well, maybe the answer is actually just rejecting it wholesale. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's like some kind of takeaway that is the only way to get out is to drop out, right? But I also feel like that final moment is not as kumbaya as maybe sure. it needs to read just because, first of all, I wasn't even sure it was real. You know, in certain ways, it feels like a dream sequence. It's like a coda. It's totally tacked on to the rest of the series. And it makes me feel like maybe it's more of a fantasy of what might happen than what really happens. I mean, who knows? There's various readings of it. But also, like you said, I mean, there's a reading of that where, you know, his enlightenment and decision to join up with this other culture is just yet another sort of way of taking the culture and and using it for your own personal nirvana. Oh, yeah, it's definitely that. Yeah, no, so I, I agree. I, I think there's definitely different ways to read it. I mean, you know, they it's it's funny because there's this recurring theme in Mike White's recent work, which is of sea turtles. And he's talked about it a little bit where, you know, in Enlightened, for example, Laura Dern's character, who I think speaks in lots of ways um, to the characters in White Lotus, though differently, is in rehab. And the series starts where she sees a, a sea turtle and it sort of makes her feel like she's part of the oneness of the world. And it sort of is the spark for everything that happens after. Her ex-husband, played by Luke Wilson, also sees the same sea turtle and it gives him a sense of hope. And then in the end of White Lotus, Mark and Quinn are finally scuba diving this father-son activity they've been trying to do all week long. And they see a sea turtle. And then later, Mike White talks about how he himself saw a sea turtle when he was diving once. And it sort of made him feel this incredible sense of peace and transcendence and sort of natural glory and all these things. And he keeps bringing it back and I keep wondering why. And I think it's this really sort of interesting symbol for the natural world intruding upon you and teaching you that like, all of your bullshit and all of your petty things, like whether or not you get the pineapple sweet doesn't matter because there's this bigger, beautiful 
oneness that you could be a part of if you just looked, but it also seems really transient and magical and elusive and maybe not real. So I think there's it's this really interesting symbol that keeps reoccurring, and I think Quinn's vision of the sea turtle is something I think about a lot. Like, what did it mean to that kid to see a sea turtle that made him want to change his entire life? And was it honest? I'm going to pause our conversation for just a minute for a word from our sponsor. Hello, listeners. We just wanted to take a moment to remind you about some of the benefits of joining Slate Plus. First of all, joining Slate Plus costs only $1 for the first month. It's $59 a year after that. The benefits include no ads on any Slate podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate website so you get access to every article without ever hitting a paywall, and of course, supporting this show, all our other podcasts, and all the great work that Slate keeps on doing. And you get bonus segments or sometimes whole bonus episodes on many of our podcasts, including Slow Burn, Amicus, The Political Gab Fest, The Culture Gab Fest, which is my personal show that I do every week, so I know we do a bonus segment every time. If you're interested in exploring some of this bonus content and all the other benefits that Slate Plus brings, go to slate.com slash plus to subscribe. All right, Isaac, I have some lightning round questions for you. One of them is that you... Seven. (laughs) No? Okay, sorry. Go on, go on, go on. One is that you earlier mentioned that the Sydney Sweeney character, Olivia, right, the, the daughter of the privileged Mossbachers, was, I forget the exact word you used, but sociopathically malevolent or something like that? Malevolently sociopathic, one or the other. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so talk a little bit more about her because we've talked about Paula, we've talked about Quinn, but we haven't talked about her. And she is a mysterious figure. I mean, her main motivation that we see is essentially to ruin everyone else's vacation, especially her mother's and her brother's, right? I mean, she seems to be someone who is so stewed and resentful that her her primary goal is to make other people unhappy. Yeah, I do think there's ways in which she's the most mysterious character on the show. There's a couple moments where it seems like part of what's going on with her is an inability to admit queer desire to herself. There's uh, particularly when she sees Rachel in a bikini for the first time and also her obsession with her friend Paula. Paula's kind of diagnosis of her, there's a really great fight the two of them have in, in towards the end of the show uh, that she and her best friend Paula have that I feel like is like a great scene study acting scene. But, you know, Paula's diagnosis is that essentially she is is breaking away from the family and treating them so horribly and, and in, in a way to kind of try to be Paula's twin, to try to kind of become her, which of course she cannot do for many reasons, including that Paula is not white and is not rich. And she can't actually, Olivia can't actually stop being who she is. And as soon as it becomes convenient for her to do so, Olivia will just snap back to being the good daughter of these people. And sure enough, that actually happens later in the episode. And so, you know, there's a mercurial aspect to that character where you're not totally sure where she stands. But for for much of the show, yeah, as you said, Dana, it does seem like she solely exists to say the most perturbing thing possible to whoever she's talking to. You know, she keeps diagnosing her younger brother with various issues. She's constantly, we're meant to think, making up ailments for Paula so that so as to make the mother's vacation worse. She's saying horrible things to the mother about her money, even though it's their money that pays for the vacation. You know, she's sort of this like like figure of pure spite. But where they go with it towards the end goes into some some pretty interesting directions, I think. My read on her is that she's supposed to stand in, I think, in certain ways for kids in college these days. Like I, it does I get, have a certain kids these days. It has a little bit of it. It's the one part of the show where I'm a little bit like this feels like it was written by an older person about younger people that maybe 
you know, about kids these days on the internet. Like what's, what's up with Gen Z, you know, a little bit that, although it is a little bit more complex and better written, I think in certain ways than a lot of attempts to capture that kind of character. But I think, you know, what, what is very so funny as a visual joke to me is all of the books that Mike White has them reading throughout the series. I mean, Paula and Olivia are constantly reading like decolonialist theory and like Franz Fanon and Freud and all of these books that you would read as like a college freshman that blow your damn mind about the way the world works. And then you feel inclined to like lecture every single person at dinner. And Olivia is a big lecturer. I mean, at their family dinners, she's constantly talking about like, you know, privilege and her parents and how they don't get it and how they're blinkered to the way the world works and all this stuff. At the same time, as she deeply enjoys the fruits of their money and their power and their ability to take such a vacation. And so there's this kind of idea of like the sort of pompous, you know, spoiled little rich girl situation about her. But I also think, like you said, there's some kind of wound at the center of her that we're not really sure what it is, whether, like you said, it's the suppression of queer desire towards her friend, or if it's this idea that she knows that her parents are kind of bullshit, but she can't figure out how to express that or how to get away because she's also tied into it and has benefited from it so severely. So, you know, and I think there's this idea with Paula, like later, you know, Paula says, you're just using me for cred. And I think it really wounds Olivia to her core because I think she has this idea deep down that she's a fraud, that she belongs with her mother in this sort of girl boss world that she constantly is calling out rather than being some kind of aberration from it. Um, So that's going on with her and Paula. And I think their tension is really, really interesting. And I think Olivia herself is great. And Sydney Sweeney, as an actor, I think is really so remarkable. I mean, she's in everything now. She's great in Euphoria. She's great in this. I think she's really, really good at playing like a um, girl who would ruin your entire life energy. Like, it's just like there's something so sinister just in her little pout and her sort of resting face. I mean, she has like resting evil face to me in like a way that is really like, I think just speaks to her talent. That's not what she probably looks like, but in this for sure. It's a challenging part because unlike most of the the white tourist characters on the show, she doesn't have a spiritual quest that she's on, right? I mean, she, like I say, is an underminer. That seems to be her primary goal. And then the last we see of her, she has been completely folded into her parents' world. With the theft of the bracelets and with that whole interaction with the hotel, she becomes, you know, completely an ally of her parents and, and knits herself back into that. I think one of the best lines in the whole show or the best exchanges and to to go back to that scene Isaac was saying between the two of them that's like a beautiful scene study is when you know Paul is saying to her that you know you think you're so different from your parents but that's your tribe that's who you are and Sydney Sweeney's character says like you don't realize like in this burglary something bad could have happened speaking you know referring to her parents could have been injured in this thing and Paula says something bad did happen which is referring to what happened to Kai and the fallout therein and it's this idea that Olivia really doesn't see outside of her own unit like her vision is just not beyond her own family but she thinks it is and that's kind of the tragedy of her character that she comes in so hot with all these ideas about the world but at the end of the day like she's always going to go back to the safety and security of her family unit 
Just to pick up on one thing we didn't get to, Isaac, but I want you to talk about this a tiny bit. We haven't talked much about the form of the show. I mean, there's so much to talk about with the themes, the characters, the acting, etc. But you interviewed the composer for this show for yeah. working the Slate podcast. And th- th- if we talk about that a bit, maybe we can talk a bit about the craft of the show, which I also think is is quite impressive. Do you have anything to say about the music, which is quite remarkable and, and strange and used a lot? There's a lot of, of scoring. Yeah, the music is used a lot. It's used in weird ways. It's very loud in the mix. It sometimes actually almost threatens to overwhelm the dialogue, you know, which is a which is a fascinating choice on Mike White's part. You don't normally think of a writer being willing to do that. Um, uh, yeah, so the music... This is what I'll say. Halfway through the first episode, I paused it and I was and I texted Cameron, our producer for working. I was like, we have to book whoever did this music. This music is crazy. It's used in a way that I've never seen before. We just got to find out what happened there. And our conversation is really great. And I recommend people listen to it. But to some things that came out of that, like most of it was written in a month. He was hired a month before they started sound mixing on the show. It was written very fast. He is playing almost every single instrument except for the women. The women's voices are not him. It's a woman friend that he recorded and then it's just pitch shift up and shifted up and down to make the melodies you know Cristobal Tapia Devere the composer comes from a percussion background most of the score is layers of percussion instruments and kind of vocal hooting and blowing on the tops of bottles that have been filled with water and stuff like that and it exists kind of independent of the world of the show it's almost like a character that comments on the show in places it is often at a weird tonal intersection to what's going on it often seems to kind of be laughing at the characters a little bit or you'll be you'll be watching something really normal like they're getting food from the buffet but the music in the background sounds like you're going to go completely insane you know what i mean like like so it's really it's really wildly in there and present in a way that I was really unaccustomed to. And I think it circles back to something we were talking about at the beginning of the show, which is that like the, the choices this show makes, it really goes for them, right? The, the scenes are longer than in other shows. The music is more present in other shows. The, the, the visuals are very, very carefully considered the momentum of it, the structure of it, all that stuff. It's just like really going for all of that stuff and, and in an unapologetic way. Yeah. And I think that, that I think you said this in, when you were talking to about the music, but it's that idea of that Hitchcockian vibe to it where it's just menacing. And I think that there's so many, so many elements of the show that, that are purposefully that. I mean, I think about even the interstitials of like waves crashing and how violent they look compared to everything else going on. Like he makes it so that there's no like peaceful shot ever of the resort when there are not people in the shot. Every shot is of like waves, like hitting a cliff with full steam in a way that would looks like it could crush bones, you know? So there's this sense of like growing, frothing sort of undertow throughout the whole thing. Right. The, the, the cuts to the to the beach and all the beautiful places that you would be looking at if you were at a, a resort in Maui are never about beauty. They're not pillow shots, right? They're not those typical sort of let's relax our eyes by looking at the surf. You're right that there's always something sinister or something violent that's being suggested. And even in the credits, I mean, this is kind of meta criticism, but I love the credit sequence to the show. And even though I watched it pretty much in one stretch, I never sped through the credits because, I mean, the music, as you say, Isaac, is so strange and um, and haunting. And just that image of the of the wall 
wallpaper covered with these organic forms that are kind of bleeding and leaking into each other was was so perfectly designed for the show. I love that sequence. Yeah, kind of like a tropical twall, but then it's also funny because you it he, it also pulls out images from each sort of little motif in the wallpaper that sort of go with the characters. Like, you know, there's this sort of like rotting fruit when they say Steve Zahn's name on scene, which kind of is a funny joke about testicular cancer. But at the same time, you know, Twal has this whole colonial history and this sort of history of being a place to put a lot of images of, of conquest. And so you see that also in the wallpaper coming out, like the boats and the sort of uh, romanticization of tropical motif. And so it already feels a little bit like it even the credits are commentary i hadn't thought about the uh, the images in the wallpaper going with the, the character's name who's being announced and now i have to go give another peek at the credits just to watch <laughs> you should that look happen. every it matches up it matches up perfectly the last thing i think i'll end on all that we briefly touched on it is just that what i consider sort of the surprise twist at the end which which is that rachel comes back to shane i mean the fact that that marriage lasts and that we don't really see why she comes back right she just appears in the airport they embrace he's relieved and you realize that that marriage as utterly doomed and horrific as it seems is going to go forward i just wondered if you had any last thoughts on that because it's something that people reacted to so strongly positive and negative on seeing this show I think that in terms of the negative reaction to it, I, I, I think that sometimes we can, I don't want to dismiss anyone's response. People can have their responses that they have, but I do think sometimes we confuse that we had a strong reaction, that something was provocative because it was actually trying to provoke us with that. It was bad. Do you know what I mean? And this is one of those cases where like the ending is extremely provocative it's like you know it it forces you to re-examine all sorts of stuff it, it makes the end the ending is very haunting it is not in any way emotionally resolved even though the plot is resolved that's something it's doing to us and so you know like it's worth examining like how provoked we get off of it because that, that's something mike white's trying to do if you're troubled by it that's 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 it working, it seems to me. Yeah. And I also think it's totally logical with those characters, which is another thing. I mean, like, I do actually think it makes sense that Rachel makes that choice. I do, too. And I think it's a culmination of a lot of things, not just her individual choice. I mean, Rachel is looking, like you said, throughout the entire series for who she is. She doesn't know. She feels really lost. She made this sort of snap decision to get married and got swept up in that. Now she's swept up in this honeymoon that's going to go on for God knows how long. I guess they're going to Tahiti after this. Like <laughs> That needs its own limited series right there. <laughs> right. And I think she's just completely sort of along for the ride. And so then she has these moments of reaching out to various people throughout the show to try to like have somebody tell her that she's doing the right or wrong thing. For example, she tries to talk to Connie Britton's character who immediately just completely shuts her down and rebuffs her by saying that she had written something negative about her and that she basically had no career in journalism. Um, so that is a terrible interaction that she has. Then she has this interaction with Shane's mother where basically she says she wants to keep working and Shane's mother says, you're a trophy wife, you should just sit on committees and that's your future. And completely dismisses her as anything other than a beauty. She tries to talk to her own mother who can't talk to her because she's like grocery shopping or something. And then this last moment that she has is she tries to reach out to Belinda, who has been kind of shepherding Tanya through her own emotional journey. And then when that doesn't pan out, Belinda is just completely exhausted and 
I would say, just over it in every possible way. So that finally, when Rachel reaches out to her to be like, should I stay in my marriage? Belinda's like, I don't effing know. Like, you do whatever you want to do. I can't. I'm done. I wash my hands of this. And I think that basically Rachel realizes that no one's going to tell her what to do. She's not going to get a straight answer from anyone. She's going to always be confused. And so she should probably just take the money. And I know that that seems like a craven decision, but it honestly probably was the right one for her. Like in a sort of way that makes me, I mean, I'm saying this in a way that reflects negatively on her, obviously, but I think she really has no idea what she's doing and she's flailing wildly. And I think in the end, she just chooses that if you can't beat them, join them and I'm never going to beat them attitude. And it's a tragedy and it's sad, but it's also like you get what you deserve. And in a certain way, I think she and Shane kind of belong together in this twisted, bad way if that makes sense. It made sense to me. I, I think I mean, even though it was a surprise in terms of it being the kind of toxic happy ending that television and movies don't usually traffic in, right? A happy ending that obviously to everyone watching is not actually happy for anyone concerned. It was a twist in that sense, but it seemed completely to flow from those, not just those two characters and how they had been drawn, but the whole system and the whole kind of, you know, world of, of corruption and decadence that they've been mired in their whole lives, or, or he has anyway, and that they've both been mired in throughout the their honeymoon. I mean, if anything, it really reminded me of the end of a 19th century novel. You know, it was like something that would happen to an Edith Wharton character or a woman in a Henry James novel, you know, somebody who's sort of trapped by by money and dependence and um, and patriarchy. But who knows themselves far less than any Edith Wharton heroine. Like, you, don't you get the sense, Isaac or Dana, that if one person had told Rachel to leave Shane, she would have done it? Right. Even one. Right. I mean, she's an incredibly passive character, and that's such a hard thing to play. And Alexandra Daddario does it so, so well. Yeah, I mean, the great thing about their sort of climactic fight is there's a part where they both call the other person a child and they are both absolutely correct. They're both of, they, they are both little children uh, for different reasons and in different ways. Uh, I love that you said Edith Wharton. I wrote down in my notes at one point, NYRB reissue book, because it feels <laughs> like, you know, because they're all in a hotel. It like moves through comedy to drama. You know, maybe maybe Rachel would write the intro to it. And, uh, uh, you know, and we'd see these characters intersect. It does have that very uh, authored kind of book feel right down to having the kind of complicated and, and dark and bleak ending that I don't think we're super used to in character-driven TV. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of, that's a good place to end, I think, because it takes us back to where we started and talking about this being a writer's piece. And so maybe the three of us as writers watching a show by a writer, you know, about, well, the character Rachel in the show is a sort of a failed writer of listicles, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, I'm not, I'm not triggered by that at all. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, we're going to have another whole season of White Lotus to talk about at some point. It's a great idea, sort of Fantasy Island style, to just keep the resort and, and change out all the characters. And I'm really, really curious to see how that happens. He said he might make it at a sister resort, and I'm hoping that he goes to a ski chalet, like the winter version. I would love that. <laughs> the frozen lotus. All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming in to talk with me about this. This was one of the funnest spoilers I've done in a while. I loved it. Oh, thank you, Dana. Thank, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. So that's our show for today. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like our show, please rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil in the future or other feedback to share with us, send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today was Morgan Flannery. For Isaac Butler and Rachel Syme, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. 